Hello everyone, I am Maria, Senior Associate at Sorain and Estonian Office. I am here together with Kirill, my colleague from Belarus. We continue with the Soraina and arbitration series, interviews with arbitration institutions that are of particular interests to users from the Baltics and Belarus. And today we warmly welcome Alexander Fesses, Secretary General of the International Court of Arbitration. Alexander, very glad to see you. And you, Maria Kirill, thank you so much to you and Sorainen for the kind invitation. Hello, Alexander, from my side as well. Uh, could we start with your background and in particular how you came to the Secretary General of the ICC? With pleasure. So I'm a Cypriot national. I uh, trained and practiced uh, uh, in law as an attorney uh, out of Athens, Greece for a number of years. I um, began my practice as lawyer by working at a boutique firm, at a boutique disputes firm that also had an emphasis on international arbitration. Uh, so I was quite lucky at the time, I think, to uh, dive into the, this fascinating world from the very beginning. Uh, for a number of years, I was also a sole practitioner focusing primarily uh, in arbitration and other dispute resolution processes before relocating to Paris about nine years ago. Uh, at which point I joined um, the Secretariat of the ICC Court. Uh, for, a, for a first period, I was um, engaged in uh, managing cases uh, primarily out of Central and Eastern Europe, which for the Secretariat, as you are well aware, includes uh, the Baltics and CIS jurisdictions. Uh, and then uh, I moved progressively through different positions. I was in charge of the uh, uh, team that was uh, managing matters in North America before move, moving to senior management. I was the managing counsel of the court for a number of years and for the past three and a half years I have the good fortune of leading the Secretariat as its Secretary General. Well Alexander, ICC and the arbitration community in general is very lucky to have you. That's very so, kind, thank you. <laughs> um, so to add some more heat to the interview with a somewhat provocative topic, Let's go with institutional or ad hoc arbitration. Does ICC even provide for an ad hoc services? Actually, we do. Uh, obviously, our main, uh, our main line of uh, services is focused on uh, arbitrations conducted under the ICC rules of arbitration. And that takes, uh, that represents about 99% of our, of our work and uh, our current caseload at any given time. Um, but as with some other arbitral institutions, we also provide services in uh, ad hoc proceedings and in other institutional proceedings. We have a, a distinct and separate set of rules uh, for those cases where ICC acts as a pointing authority and provides a number of services. Um, you know, I'm tempted to reply to your question as to which one to, uh, uh, to choose uh, by um, referring to something that many years ago was uh, uh, mentioned by the late uh, Stephen Bond, who was one of my predecessors at, uh, uh, at this position of Secretary General. And he was a very staunch opponent of ad hoc arbitration, criticizing uh, very eloquently uh, the disadvantages uh, to which, uh, which parties and arbitrators are exposed to and the potential risks of the arbitral processes. Uh, that might arise in the context of an ad hoc proceeding. The main, I think, challenge being, of course, that um, aside the arbitration agreement, 
uh, and unless the parties have chosen an institutional or a procedural setting, um, they're basically left to their own devices. And ultimately, in the absence of an over overseeing or supervisory uh, body, such as the ICC court, any, uh, any difference or any deadlock can only be um, uh, overcome uh, by uh, resort to state courts. And obviously, as arbitration uh, expands and its use becomes proliferated more and more, um, that means uh, an excess of time and costs being expended in situations that are utterly unnecessary. So my advice would be uh, to our fellow lawyers and, and in, in, in law firms and in-house counsel, of course, when you're drafting arbitration agreements, uh, make sure you make the right choice. And if you are not sure about what the right choice may be, uh, reach out to uh, to a reputable arbitral institution and ask for some uh, ask for some uh, perspectives and, and general feedback in this regard. Well, thank you for this explanation, Alexander. I think you pretty much laid out the main selling points that we lawyers um, use when clients ask whether to opt for institutional or ad hoc arbitration. What you just spoke of is exactly what we've been explaining to clients as well. I'm glad we're aligned. <laughs> So what is your personal opinion? Why do you think that parties from the Baltic states should be interested in resolving disputes in ICC? And when would it be appropriate for them to maybe opt for the ICC as a dispute resolution forum rather than go with another institution? Well, let me let me begin with the second part of your question, which I think hopefully will also cover the first. What we see, uh, if, if one looks really at the caseload uh, uh, that we have uh, focusing on parties uh, parties from the Baltics and also uh, more broadly cases involving the Baltics, you would see two two trends and they're com complementary. Uh, on the one hand, you have cases that are very regional and may even be qualified in the in the grander scheme of things as as nearly domestic. And most of those cases um, are not necessarily the very high-end uh, dollar in, in terms of the dollar dis, uh, dollar value of the, of the claims on the higher, very higher end of the uh, of, of the scale. Uh, yet, if one puts this in the context of the um, of the overall caseload of ICC, one will also see that there are actually a lot of cases of this size or this um, sort of like making. Uh, that one encounters across many different jurisdictions uh, uh, in which ICC arbitration is being used. So there is no defin definitely a defining characteristic with regard to Baltic disputes that can be taken up to this. At the same time, you also have a number of disputes which are purely international, sometimes involving states or state-owned entities, either from region or, be or beyond, and obviously an investor interest. And in, again, in a purely commercial context, I'm still uh, speaking about commercial disputes, of course. And those cases usually have certain uh, procedural or even substantive complexities, and usually the uh, financial or economic uh, dimension of the case is uh, quite important. So in a way, I think what we see as an emerging trend conforms, with regard to the Baltics, I mean, conforms to the general trends that we see worldwide. One thing that I think is notable with regard to those disputes is that there seems to be very, a, a very a progressively advanced understanding of the benefits of resorting to ICC arbitration. And I'm happy, of course, 
uh, if time allows to explain what they are. And I think it is in a way uh, indicative of an indication of the disputes market in the Baltic states to want to be included in the world of cross-border uh, disputes uh, on an equal par with their colleagues uh, across different jurisdictions. So I think it is that level of trust and also confidence uh, that, uh, that we actually see emerge in these cases. Thank you, Alexander. And going from market level to kind of a personal level, could you enlighten us a bit more on what institution takes into consideration when appointing arbitration or arbitrators? Are there some sort of internal guidelines that help to keep the high standard towards arbitrators in ICC? Thank you, uh, Kirill. Of course, we have we have internal internal processes uh, and and practices. Uh, that guide the members of the Secretariat and indeed the ICC court when it needs to proceed with making appointments. And the process in its uh, defining features is, is set out, of course, in the ICC rules. Um, I, I should premise my reply by saying that uh, in ICC arbitration, there is a very, very strong presumption in favor of party autonomy, which means that in, in essentially that it is up to the parties to decide how to constitute tribunals and of course to retain the discretion in fully uh, constituting the tribunals them, themselves. It is only therefore a residual power that the ICC courts in appointing arbitrators and indeed I don't think it, it's probably about 29 to 30 percent of the cases only where the ICC court does proceed with making an appointment. Now, when uh, the ICC court needs to make an appointment, obviously it's a very important decision, both in terms of the reputation of the court, but importantly also, it will have far-reaching effects into the way that the proceedings will actually evolve and ultimately into the end product, the arbitral award. So it is a decision that comes with certain high stakes. So how do we go about it? We have two ways, basically, of doing it. And, and again, in a way, the, um, the methodology is complementary. Uh, in both. On the one hand, uh, the ICC court is a body incorporated in a larger structure, which is the International Chamber of Commerce, and the International Chamber of Commerce has a wide network of national committees. If you like, broadly speaking, it's uh, national chapters. Uh, and therefore, it has an immediate access to a network of arbitrators uh, across different jurisdictions, uh, which from which it can draw upon relying with uh, upon relying it on uh, on on the expertise uh, of national committees, uh, request their proposals and then vet those proposals in order to find the best uh, suited and best available candidate. In some cases, where there is no national committee present or where a state entity is involved in the case, for instance, the ICC court will also not use this process and go directly and appoint an arbitrator. Uh, in those cases, it will also more or less draw upon the Secretariat's experience and its own experience. We're very fortunate to be managing anything from 1,600 to 1,800 pending cases at any given time. And you have a lot of arbitrators and a lot of counsel active in these cases. And you know, another benefit of the institutional system that is set out in the ICC rules is that the, the Secretariat has this supervisory function and therefore uh, is able to witness the progress and performance of arbitrators and counsel in these cases and therefore is able 
to have a rather wide pool of potential arbitrators from one uh, from from which to draw. Ultimately, of course, we're very rigorous in making sure that conflicts are vetted, uh, that arbitrators uh, understand their uh, obligations with regard to efficiency and also uh, the timely submission of awards. So all of these issues are actually considered when an appointment is being made aside any specific circumstances. So proficiency in a specific uh, uh, law or linguistic requirements or uh, experience in specific sectors and so on and so forth. Well, appointment of arbitrators is, of course, a very important part of any arbitration proceeding. But how does the ICC court keep an ear to the ground with the arbitration proceedings after the file is transmitted to the tribunal? And does the institution provide any guidance to newcomer arbitrators? Well, it's true that an institution usually has seemingly at least less work to do once the file is transmitted. It's more on the lawyer side, as you know, and the arbitrators to actually uh, do all the dirty work. But the, you know, our system of administration is um, in a way premised on a, a rather marked presence by, uh, by the Secretariat throughout the proceedings. Uh, which has both formal and perhaps less formal uh, aspects to it. The formal aspect is that obviously uh, you monitor the financial aspect, you are there uh, to, uh, to make sure that the procedural calendar is maintained or to track any changes in this regard. As I mentioned earlier, um, monitor any potential time impacts by adverse circumstances such as the COVID pandemic uh, and also ensure timely submission of arbitral awards and other decisions. Uh, there is an informal aspect of, uh, of this practice or this, uh, this activity, however, which cannot go unnoticed. And I think ultimately, given that parties pay uh, the ICC court an administrative fee at the end of the, at the, end of the case, uh, both parties and arbitrators should make good use of it. And, and that is also something you see coming into the guidance you just mentioned to uh, newer practitioners and arbitrators with, with perhaps less experience. And what that means is that the Secretariat is only a phone call or an email away. Um, we are not here to provide legal advice. We cannot provide legal advice under the rules, of course, and we must always observe strict neutrality. But what we can do in the context of these, uh, of these parameters uh, or in the limits of these parameters is to uh, provide support and clarity with regard to how the rules are being applied and of course, uh, with regard to the court's practices. So um, you could even say that this is rather, a, you know, a very, a very active and prominent role that the secretariat and the court plays uh, throughout the, uh, the um, uh, duration of the proceedings. Okay, thank you, Alexander. And going to some new trends, there is kind of a recent hype around technologies. For instance, we have seen institutions introducing new platforms to accommodate the needs of users, which actually proved to be valuable during COVID-19 lockdown period. How ICC IT thinking changed and how do you keep up with the recent trends? Well, it, it's true that it might be seen as a new discussion. I am not fully certain that it is a new discussion. I think the use of tech is something in, in dispute resolution is, uh, is something as, uh, as old as the telex. You know, the ICC was a pioneer in this field in uh, in the fa in, in in two respects. First of all, it had 
um, designed its own internal case management platform about uh, uh, 20, 22 years ago. Uh, and it's now, of course, in the process of being revamped. And uh, it also uh, devised and launched a, an online case management platform, which was open to arbitrators, parties, and the Secretariat of the Court a number of years ago. As I said, we're now in the process of revamping both of these tools. Um, and not uh, in uh, in light of the pandemic. This is something that has started some time ago, uh, and I hope will be nearing completion uh, in uh, in the first months of 2021. This is of course necessary because all of us, as members of the dispute resolution community and the legal profession, must make that transition to a digital transformation, and. Um, institutions do have an important role to play in this regard, not only by enhancing their services in the way that I've described, but also in ensuring that all other stakeholders in a dispute resolution process understand and embrace the uh, potential benefits that this digital transformation will bring about. And of course, as you both know, this goes into a number of things uh, in, in, in daily uh, interactions and communications, in the way hearings may be conducted, in the way document production may be conducted, and so on and so forth. All of those points have been taken into account in the um, revision of the ICC rules. New rules will be coming into effect on the 1st of January 2021. And there are a number of uh, elements that in the new rules that highlight these points. Ultimately, I think, and since we spoke about the Baltics and, and perhaps also some disputes that might be of a lesser value and smaller complexity, uh, our um, eyes are also set in providing online dispute resolution uh, soon enough. That, that is going to be a, a completely separate service, I imagine, uh, from the one that we currently provide under the ICC rules. Uh, and it will allow parties um, to uh, settle, as I said, probably smaller scale disputes, but a more substantial number of disputes in uh, a time and cost efficient way by using digital technology. Mm -hmm. And going to another side of digital technology, have you noticed an increase of IT disputes over the recent years? Um, well, one would need to define what recent years are, but uh, I think if, if, if by that you mean in the very recent past, uh, past Kirill, I would say that uh, yes, there was uh, perhaps some hesitation uh, within uh, the IP sector, if we can call it that, although it's quite varied, as you know, uh, with regard to the potential benefits of, of moving away from state court proceedings and into into uh, the realm of private justice, into the realm of arbitration. Uh, first of all, there is something to be said about the stakes involved in the dispute and the need to uh, resort to um, very experienced court judges. Uh, and, and therefore, there are courts in the world and certain jurisdictions that have that level of proficiency and ability to settle their, these cases and also do that in a rapid way. Um, I think what has happened in the recent years, again, is that there is more understanding that those same benefits that one might identify in a purely domestic context actually exist on the international context. And if you are indeed involved in, cross, in cross-border transactions and in, in, in world trade, it will probably be much difficult to uh, convince your counterparty uh, to go to, uh, to opt for domestic court proceedings 
and uh, easy, uh, more easy, of course, to resort to um, to arbitration. So I think there is a progressive change. We have seen an increase uh, in IP disputes. I must say, primarily in jurisdictions that export uh, IP, uh, and I would say primarily that uh, is centered in, uh, in North America, uh, parts of Europe, including uh, CIS to a certain extent, and of course, uh, and of course, parts uh, parts in Asia, and I do expect that we will see more of that uh, as as the time uh, as the time progresses. As for the last question, what would you say about enforceability of the awards issued by the ICC? Do you monitor this somehow, or do you receive feedback in an other way? What is what would be your comment? Well, thank you. Uh, my comment would be the following. Obviously, the award, the arbitral award, is the most important product uh, and product of the process. And um, that is the document that allows you to connect, to compel collection or to connect. Uh, and you are, I am aware, I am sure familiar with the fact that uh, the ICC court uh, has a, a very specific service that is basically an exercise in, in the enforceability, validity and enforceability of arbitral awards, and that is called scrutiny. Uh, therefore, under the ICC rules, uh, the courts uh, reviews draft awards with regards to their formal aspects and to a specific degree uh, with regard also to the substantive aspects of, of the award as well, of the draft award as well. And no award may be released by arbitrators until such time as it has been approved as to its form uh, by the ICC court. Why is this important? I think it's important exactly, uh, Maria, for the point that you've uh, asked me to comment on. The purpose of scrutiny is to ensure that the award will be shielded from uh, any potential uh, validity risk or enforceability risk. And therefore, instead of waiting for a state court to uh, conduct that review in setting aside or enforcement proceedings, we have integrated it into the arbitral process itself. So prior to the award being rendered. Do we monitor uh, enforcement? It's difficult to monitor enforcement because at the time that enforcement may be sought, uh, the case is already over. So we do we do rely on the information that we will be relayed to us by the interested parties and counsel. Uh, we also, of course, monitor uh, uh, the media, and if we do become aware of a and 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 core practice. So if we do become aware of a publication uh, of of a judgment uh, relating to uh, to an ICC award or otherwise any media report in this regard, um, we do take that into account. The um, data, therefore, is empirical. It's not fully uh, statistical. What I can tell you, and I, uh, and I say this with a lot of um, confidence with regards to scrutiny and its, and its benefits, is, for instance, out of the cases that we have identified in the course of 2020, the year is still not over, of course, um, only about 0.7% of all arbitral awards that had been rendered uh, in the same period uh, were successfully challenged in either setting aside or uh, enforcement proceedings. I would hope that other institutions also share data, and this is an open invitation and, and one that I think we should all commit to because it's important. Uh, it's an important way, I think, and a very eloquent way to demonstrate 
to our colleagues uh, across the legal profession on the good benefits of institutional arbitration and that this is a system that really works. Alexander, thank you so much for your time and lifting the veil on ICC work. It was our great pleasure. And dear friends, we were here today with Secretary General of the International Court of Arbitration. Thank you for listening and tuned for the next episode of Sarainan Arbitration Series. Bye.